So you want to watch a movie but you don't know which Choosing the one can be a bitch But Jared and Drew have perfected the art So sit back, relax, and trust the dark It's Dartboard Movie Night What's going on everyone? I'm Drew And I'm Jared Welcome to Dartboard Movie Night The podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide this week, we're covering another debut film, the second that we've covered after Bound by the Wachowskis. It's from one of the most celebrated filmmakers of his generation and christened him as an artist to watch back when it was released in 1996. This week, we are talking Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. How are you feeling about that tonight, Jared? Excited, dude. Excited as usual to chat about it. And Wes Anderson is a polarizing filmmaker, and it's cool to see another debut film from a would say what you will about him, an extremely impactful artist and a movie I think both of us had never seen. So I'm excited to see what we thought about it. Just kind of bounce it around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be interested to, to get your thoughts on it. It's, um, I, it's interesting you describe him as a polarizing filmmaker. I don't really think of him that way. I think he's incredibly hmm. celebrated. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess you're, you're right in that he's a love him or hate him kind of guy where like yeah. you, you either are fully on board with his very quirky style or you are annoyed by it. I feel like, yeah, I think that's so true. I think like 80% of people really dig his style and like the majority of his movies. And then there's a 20% or so, something like that. That's just like, Oh man, fuck this guy, <laughs> you know? And I think he's aware of that perception of him. I saw an interview with him and he kind of mentioned something like that, you know, that people either tend to really like his movies and some people just hate him. You know, I, you know, I think he's a guy though, that, that even if you don't like his style, I, I would hope you're not being as dismissive as to say, well, fuck this guy, because quite honestly, it, we need more artists out there that are willing to do exactly what they, you know, is in their head. I, I don't know. I like, I think, I think, I think his uniqueness is his superpower, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that when we start talking about bottle rocket 1996 film, like drew mentioned currently available on HBO max and rentable from a variety of spots like Amazon and YouTube. So if you're interested in checking it out, shouldn't be too hard to find. So with that said, Drew, what's our current board looking like these days? Yeah, let's do a quick board review of where we sit. So uh, the current board that Bottle Rocket was chosen off of goes like this. Number one, you can count on me. Number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, Last Night in Soho. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, tonight's episode, Bottle Rocket. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Face Off. And number 20, Kung Fu Hustle. Oh, so, dude, I forgot. I'm sorry. I just, I forgot you added Face Off last week. No, that, or, or that wasn't last week. That was a couple of weeks ago. You Last try, week, you added Last Night in Soho. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I just had forgotten about Face Off. I was like, God damn, that's a good pick. Dude. A lot of good <laughs> shit on that board. Yeah, we got uh, we got some fun stuff up there. We need to hit something on yep. the front half of the board though. We've been I know. we've been hanging out in the back half for for a long time Dude, at this point. It's there are so many movies on that front section, like you're saying, that are OGs, mm-hmm. like Ex Machina, Sixth Sense, a bunch of them that we just have not hit yet. 
Yeah, find and a way to shake lot, the aversion of those numbers. A lot of those single digits that we have not hit at all yet. Um, also, I'm on a three movie streak right now. We've done Dude. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The King of Comedy, and Bottle Rocket. So tying your longest streak and one away from matching my longest streak. As we're saying, this is a Drew Clark choice. So let me ask you that intro question, Drew. How'd this get on the board? So uh, this is a movie that I've always been aware of. Um, you know, I, I it's you know I mentioned in the intro that this is Wes Anderson's debut. Um, you know, we we already covered one debut in Bound uh, earlier this this uh, this year on the show, mm. and I, I always find it fascinating to see artists that have such a distinct point of view as mm-hmm. the Wachowskis and as Wes Anderson do. Uh, does um and it's interesting to see the debut of people like that because you can see kind of all the little hints at what they will become in those movies Mm -hmm. so it's a movie that's always interested me in that like wes anderson is such a distinct visual artist and such a distinct filmmaker that i wanted to see what that would look like i'm a huge huge fan of rushmore and that's that's by far my favorite Wes Anderson film. And I think because it's uh, not quite as quirky and twee as as his other stuff is, um, even though I do like a lot of those films as well, I'm a huge fan of of uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. But those movies never connect emotionally for me the way that Rushmore did. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious to see if Bottle Rocket also being an early Wes Anderson film, if that would strike a lot of those same notes for me. Um, right. Yeah. Like maybe he would have the, his sort of foundational philosophy of his style in place, but maybe it would be a little reined in and a little less uh, pedal to the metal. Is that, if that's fair to say? Yeah. And not to, that's not to say that Rushmore is not, completely Wes Anderson. And and we'll get to this when we, you know, get more into uh, Bottle Rocket, but I mean this is totally Wes Anderson as well. Mm-hmm. But it's it is grounded a little bit yeah. more more uh I don't know. Yeah. I, no, yeah. I agree. It's not a fairy tale. Like Grand Budapest Hotel is like is like a storybook story almost right. or something. It's really big and really um it's not really t- intended to be taken literally, I don't no, think. No, it operates by its own internal logic. And, and yeah. I think that these movies do that too, to an extent, in terms of Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, but I do think that they they still adhere to reality a lot more than, than right. those later movies do. Now, is this, um, seeing Bottle Rocket, is this a closeout for you? Have you seen all of Wes Anderson films at this point, or are there some other hanging ones that you haven't checked out yet? So, I watched... The Life Aquatic, when I was much younger, that was actually the first one that I ever saw of his. Mm. Um, but I feel like in a lot of ways I haven't seen it because I, you know, I saw it when I was you know, young and just didn't really process it. And I, I think I just kind of wrote it off and, and kind of checked out from it. Um, mm-hmm. n- I think that is also a movie that is so much his style, almost to a fault, that... Um, Maybe because I wasn't as immersed in his stuff, I didn't enjoy it as much. So anyway, that point of that is to say that I really want to give that movie another shot. I don't remember most of it. The other one is I've never seen the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. But I have seen the rest of his filmography. 
So I, I didn't realize how many holes I had in his filmography. Really? Which ones haven't you? Not, oh, no. You know what? I take that back. I haven't seen uh, the Darjeeling Limited either. You see, I don't think I've seen that one. It sounds familiar, but I'm pretty sure I haven't seen it. I remember I had a similar reaction or I had a similar experience with the Royal Tenenbaums. Like it sounds like you had with Life Aquatic, which is I saw it when I was pretty young, like maybe late middle school something like that, early high school. And I was just like, what? What's going on here? I didn't hate it, but I was just so out of the loop of what Wes Anderson's frequency was like that I was like kind of thrown off. And I, I did. I liked parts of it, but I really want to see it again because I, I was kind of too young for it, I think. Never seen Life Aquatic. Never seen Moonrise Kingdom. Never seen um, Darjeeling Limited, like I mentioned. And then there's, I think, the, the most recent one I haven't seen yet. The one that came out, I think, 2021. The French Dispatch. Yeah, French Dispatch. I have seen, I guess that would be the easier thing to say, of the ones that I've seen. I've seen, you showed me Rushmore back in the day. And I remember thinking it was pretty good. I kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. Didn't sweep me off my feet, but I, overall, I dug it. And then there's uh, Royal Tenenbaums and Grand Budapest. Those are the ones those, you've seen. Those are the ones I've seen and, and remember. I mean, to be honest, he doesn't have a huge filmography, so you've seen a good bit of it. You yeah. know? Um, it's, not, it's not a massive filmography, so it's, it, you could easily... And, and the nice thing about Wes Anderson, too, is I feel like all of his movies are always a reasonable length. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's true based on the ones I've seen. I feel like they're always under two hours. Oh, oh, for sure. I don't know if he's made a single movie over two hours. Hmm. Yeah, so he makes kind of like a digestible... At least in runtime, <laughs> digestible films. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, what was your uh, your feeling on this? Watching this now, now that you've seen uh, one more to add to that list. This was a great exercise, in for me anyway, how important headspace is when you watch a movie. So we mentioned how Wes Anderson is somewhat polarizing. I'll just get this out there. I am on the side that really does not find his style appealing more often than not. Like I find it to be so obsessed with quirkiness and it to the point where it's obnoxious and it makes me roll my eyes a lot. And his movies tend to try so hard to be abnormal to the point that it annoys me and frustrates me. And which is the a silliest criticism you could say about a film is that it's trying too hard, but I can't help but feeling that one way. could say maybe that it's, Ernest? Yeah, it is. It's Which is totally seemingly in, a buzzword that you are avoiding at all costs. Well, I just don't like uh, filmmakers who have very specific obsessions that they can't break out of. Like, he can't not make a quirky film. Like, it's, it's, his, it's really the only thing he does. Yeah, you and know, it's it, exhausting to me. You know, it's interesting. I was reading... Um, a review by Scott Tobias for the AV club about, of, about bottle rocket. Mm-hmm. And he was reviewing it around the time that fantastic Mr. Fox came out and he was commenting on how he found, and I haven't seen fantastic Mr. Fox, so I can't really say how, how true this is, but um, he was talking about how that was an adaptation of a rolled doll story and how, it was fascinating to him how he somehow merged his style with Roald Dahl's style and that it his style fully came through and that that was something he didn't totally expect from that film, being that it was stop-motion animated, 
and uh, he didn't have quite as much control in that way, like because it was so intricate. Um, it and I find that really interesting that he, you know, in theory, again, because I haven't seen the movie, but like to think about that that movie is an example of exactly what you're talking about where it's like he can't get away from that style in any way yeah. even when he's put in a position where it would be natural to get away from that style yeah yeah i mean like every every scene that i i see of him it seems like he's at he said he asks like or says wouldn't it be funny if and like but that's everything like wouldn't it be funny if this was happening and it didn't really make sense and wouldn't it be funny wouldn't it be funny and it's pretty hypocritical of me to disparage his style because I do like filmmakers who seem to take an approach like that. Like we talked about Putney Swope, which is very much like, well, that's random and that doesn't really make sense. But Putney Swope and other movies that do that have a bit more cynicism in their approach, I guess. And I like that. I, that makes it funny to me. But when it, when something is so earnest and optimistic, but also doing wouldn't it be funny if I find it kind of it, it's not repulsive that's too strong but you you find him to be uh optimistic as a filmmaker generally yeah i do i do i think he has uh an optimistic view on life its rosy aspects and it's um it's strange and a it's strange beauty and it's opportunities uh, based on yeah. the, the few no, that I I've think seen. That, I think that's a good reading. Yeah, I just yeah. I, I wanted to. And I think he's also optimistic more. about uh, human interaction as well. I think he he looks at that in a positive way more often than not. I mean, he has villains in his films, but he he tends to focus on, again, in my experience, positive interactions between people, love, friendship, and things like that. All mm -hmm. and it's funny because those I view myself as a pretty optimistic person, and I also really value those things. But something about his style tends to rebuke me. So more to the point of this specific film and meaning like my headspace watching it. I got home late from work on Friday. I was exhausted. It's like, I'm going to watch Bottle Rocket tonight because I really like to watch it twice before Drew and I chat about it. So I threw it in and I just wasn't having it. I was just in a bad mood and I was watching this movie and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a funny, weird thing to do. And I was just trashing it, going out of my way. And I was like, geez, I don't know what I'm going to say about this movie. You know, ugh, Wes Anderson, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Slept on it a couple nights, watched it again today, and had a totally different experience. It was like, oh, I really, I was just being obnoxious uh, about how much I was bashing this movie. I was in a bad mood. And I think I got to be cautious about when I bring an energy or a mood into a movie, especially if it's a director that I tend to have some issues with. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're I was gonna, You're going to have like that kind of like, uh, re like, what do, what do they call it? Um, like a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing? Sort of, yeah, where, where you come into something with a preloaded expectation. You're, you, yeah. you find it because you're looking for it. Yeah, and I was like, I was hoping that his his quirky tendencies would be a little reined in, like we were saying, with the, with the fact that it's a debut film. And I think that is true to an extent. Um, but it comes down to the fact I just was not in the mood to watch the movie and I was forcing it and it, yeah. and it polluted my opinion of the film. So then when I watched it again today in preparation for our recording, I was like, oh, yeah, bad. I was just in a bad mood. I really like this movie. It's not perfect, um, but I overall, I really, really dug it. I think it's again on second viewing it was like totally different experience. <laughs> I, I grew to really respond well to the looseness on the second thing, uh, the second viewing. and really started loving the performances more and found them very endearing 
and very, very charming. And that's the word I would use. This movie charmed me. And that's coming in from someone who is cynical about Wes Anderson's work and tends to be kind of like, you know, no disrespect to the person. I hope he continues to achieve success. I just do not personally respond to his style. Yeah. He won me over on this one. I I, I ended up really digging it. And it's it's growing on me now, just even as I'm just ranting about this. Or not ranting, but spouting. Uh, so, yeah, I liked it more than I thought I would. And I'm super glad I saw it a second time in a more positive state of mind. And, yeah, it it won me over. How'd you feel about it? No, that's awesome to hear. I'm glad to hear that, uh, you know, you, you were able to come around on it. I, I also kind of grew in my appreciation with this movie the more it sat with me. Your experience was not my experience by any means. I definitely really enjoyed this movie the first time I watched it, but I kind of watched it and, and just got a purely comedic enjoyment out of it, you know, just the, in terms of the situations the characters find themselves in and, you know, the mm. way the dialogue and the way that they, uh, the way that Dignan specifically just his, his character, you know, is just inherently funny. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think I just kind of had a, a lukewarm reaction first time watching. I was like, yeah, okay. I see. I see that it's, it's Wes Anderson. I get it. But the more I sat with it, I, I really like, grew grew to love those characters as I thought about them more and you know it made me want to go back and rewatch which I did this morning and again you know like you like you're saying I just had a really good time with it on second viewing I don't think it's yeah. like an incredible film by any means I think it's mm-hmm. definitely like you can tell it's it's a, it's a film that was written specifically because it was something they knew they could pull off mm-hmm. but even still like when someone does that well, it's impressive, you know, same Mm -hmm. deal with bound, like where it was like they, they wrote themselves something that they knew was manageable at the time for them as filmmakers, but they knocked it out of the park when they did it, you know, for sure. Um, I think that's a better film than this. Don't get me wrong. Like that film Mm. is, is outstanding in my opinion. But, uh, and, and this, I, I still think is, is just, it's just a really good movie, you know? Um, I think there are there are elements of it that will stick with me for a long time that I really really love. I think I was actually really blown away by the sweetness of the relationship between him and Inez, uh, which I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of how the movie is written, I, I think the movie leaves a little bit to be desired in terms of the propulsive energy to it. It just kind of wanders throughout its story without real purpose behind it a lot of the time, which kind of frustrated me on the first viewing was part of why I didn't totally enjoy it. Um, there, mm-hmm. there just wasn't much energy moving me through the movie. Dude, I think I can only deeply echo what you just said. I think that it's, I was going to say, I think it's a second movie watch because I had a similar reaction, but in a, in a slightly more negative way than you did on first watch. Where I was like, where is this going? And again, it's because I was cranky and I was tired from the work week. And I was like, take me somewhere, please. I'm bored. But when you watch the movie a second time, just like you're saying, you don't care where it's going. You're just rolling with it more. And I think it's definitely a second watch film because it does operate on a very unique energy. We've talked a lot about these sort of unique energy type of films recently. But this one was even looser than a lot of those that we've covered. You know, thinking of things like Repo Man and things like that. This was even kind of more lazy and more rinky-dink and more meandery than than, the, than that film. And when you, 
adjust to that speed on second viewing, you can just slip into those slippers, so to speak, and just walk at the film's pace and really enjoy it. And that's 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 what happened to me. I was like, okay, now I understand the the, the gear that this movie's functioning in, and I'm rolling with it a lot better. And it and that's when I really started warming to it. Yeah. Well, and the other part that drew me into this movie more was uh, digging more into the backstory of it, which I'm really <laughs> excited to talk about because yeah, yeah. Uh, this movie and how it came about is really fascinating. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we we talked about your your feelings on Wes Anderson. I, I you know I did want to just say I think like overall, I, I think I'm somewhere in between you and loving him. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, Wes Anderson as an artist is someone that I really. Um, more often than not have feelings of like, I appreciate what you're doing if I don't totally like love this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does have, you know, some films that I, that I really do love. Like I said, like Rushmore is, is a, a huge film for me. So yeah. anyway, I was, I was excited to watch this movie in terms of that context. And, um, you know, the other thing that I really got out of this was uh, just seeing the little hints at his style coming through, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we'll get to when we talk about the making of is that he, this is his basically his first time directing anything. Um, He directed a 13 minute short film of this to prove that they could actually make a movie. And then they made this movie. They, they did no other work uh, before this. So, you know, all of, you know, when you look at this, it's like you imagine like all the filmmakers who go through film school and like do, you know, 15 different shorts throughout film school. And like they've got this whole reel like Wes Anderson had none of that. He just he came into this and this was it. So this is what you're watching with Bottle Rocket is his film school. Which is which is. Incredible that this is if this is a true first time director, like a lot of times we have quote unquote first time directors who had some some shorts they did and I guess obviously like you said Wes did do a, a short for this before this but you know maybe like we've talked about Scorsese in the past they have a couple of really small films and then they get their first big one you know it's pretty insane that this was like right out of the shoot because the direction is really strong and the camera work is really strong and the editing is really good it's like uh, born to do it possibly born to do it yeah it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty special well we'll get back to that when we talk about the making of um but i i did want to talk about just the movie in terms of its impact on film because i think what this movie did was i mean this movie came out the same year as fargo and and the same year that fargo was a sensation and really that was the coen brothers first mainstream hit and it's interesting to think about this movie and Fargo as being kind of the the movies that legitimized quirkiness in the mainstream film uh, mm-hmm. culture. You know, I, I think like movies, the entire kind of indie film movement of the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm thinking like, Movies like Being John Malkovich, uh, Juno, the whole Mumblecore movement, um, you know, with the Duplass brothers and and um, Joe Swanberg and stuff like that. Like those movies are able to exist because of movies like Bottle Rocket, mm. um, legitimizing that style. And I think that that's really interesting to think about because this movie, like, is coming out at a time where 
you know, the number one movie at the box office is like, you know, Air Force One and shit, you know, like, <laughs> like, and, and like, that's great too. And I miss that, that era of films. But I think like this movie walked so Garden State could run, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's a really good way to put it. Life Aquatic and, or not Life Aquatic. Squid and the Whale and other things like that. For you know? sure. Well, well. to be fair, this movie also came out the same year as Kicking and Screaming, which was Noah Baumbach's debut. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty, I've never seen Kicking and Screaming, by the way. I've heard it's very good. I haven't I've either. never seen it. Yeah. yeah that's a, that'll be something I might put on the board someday. Nice. I would love to do a Baumbach. That'd be fun. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I just wanted to say, you mentioned Fargo. A difference I would draw between this film and that film is I believe in Fargo, the characters are very quirky, but the film is not like that. But what's different about Wes Anderson is the characters are quirky and the film is quirky, which is not a bad thing. It's just, he kind of doubles up on the quirk. Whereas like Fargo for my money is shot in kind of a straight way. And it's just got these very strange people in it. Um, but, but I get what you're saying. And I, I agree that they kind of brought, quirkiness into being not cool but you know like but more culturally relevant and my understanding and you can correct me as we go into the backstory of this film but that it was really not successful when it first came out is that true no you're right i mean but it did achieve like cult status Mm -hmm. after that um but no it was it didn't even make its budget back and its budget was uh i think seven million at the end of it Mm. Um, so no, it did not make a lot of money, but what it did was it showed what him and Owen Wilson, what Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson could do. And And then they got a much bigger, well, yes, but I'm talking about as writer director duo. I got you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cause Owen, for those who don't know, Owen Wilson co-wrote this movie with Wes Anderson as well as Rushmore, as well as the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, Mm. I don't remember if Owen also wrote the life aquatic. I don't think he did. Uh, but either way, yeah, they were, they were collaborators in that way as well as, you know, a director actor pairing. So, um, no, I mean, after this movie came out, I, I think I read that Owen Wilson said he was uh, pretty sure he was going to have to go back and like work in a fast food restaurant or something. Yeah. Uh, he didn't think he was going to have a career. This movie has, and, and, and Owen Wilson and, and Wes Anderson as filmmakers and, and artists have one major person to thank for their, all of their success. Two major people, but one above the the other one. Uh, And that person is Polly Platt. So are you familiar with Polly Platt? The name sounds vaguely familiar, but but in all honesty, no. I I couldn't name their involvement or her involvement in things. Polly Platt is one of the undersung greatest uh, guiding forces behind some of the greatest filmmakers of the last 50 years. Um, she is in a lot of, a lot of people contend that she is the real person behind Peter Bogdanovich's success. And she had a, a large part in, um, mid career James L. Brooks success as well. Um, she is one of the greatest producers of all time. She doesn't have a ton of credits ultimately, but she worked behind the scenes on a lot of things uncredited as well. Um, so Polly Platt for a long time was a cla- the the uh, right hand person of P- 
Peter Bogdanovich. She was his uh, his lover as well, I believe. Uh, I want to say that they made it maybe even were married for a little bit, but um, she was pretty much like the eye for talent and and like uh, eye for like cinema, like that he needed to to kind of corral his his film brain and make movies. What like, is Peter uh, Bogdanovich created? So Peter Bogdanovich made the last picture show. Um, that's, that's his biggest one. So that's Jeff Bridges and Cloris Leachman won a ton of Oscars. He also did uh, paper moon with Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill, which was a huge movie for the Oscars in like 1974, I think. Um, but he's he's just a, a filmmaker of great renown. He's also a film critic who uh, has written a lot of uh, big papers and essays and such. Uh, he's just one of those kind of guys, uh, New York mm-hmm. socialite. But he, a lot of people contend that the second that Polly Platt and him split up is the second his career t- went down the tubes, basically. Yeah, that's when he became a critic. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He was a critic before he was a filmmaker, oh, okay. actually. Um, but he was he was like friends with Orson Welles and shit, but it's a, he's got a really fascinating life. Um, I want to say also, on the topic of Polly Platt, everyone should check out a podcast called You Must Remember This. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal podcast by uh, Karina Longworth, who uh, is actually married to Ryan Johnson, but she's just oh, like cool. an incredible film historian and she puts together these great like multi-part um like podcast essays basically on various topics and she did a whole series on Polly Platt um which I listened to one of the episodes which is where I'm getting a lot of my information that I'm talking about for the making of um I want to credit her there um mm-hmm. so thank you Karina Longworth she's phenomenal go check out that podcast but um the episode on Bottle Rocket specifically is really really cool Anyway, she she phenomenal eye for talent. Uh, she just like understands filmmaking. She's just a brilliant, brilliant person. And she was in the late eighties and early nineties working for Gracie Films, which is James L. Brooks's production company. James L. Brooks is the filmmaker behind films like uh, Broadcast News, Terms of Endearment, As Good as It Gets. Uh, he's also the producer of the Simpsons that got the Simpsons made. He made buku money off of the Simpsons. So anyone who has ever watched a Simpson ep- episode knows that it finishes with the Gracie films, uh, thing of the, the person in the theater and it goes, that's Gracie films. Um, they also produced movies by filmmakers like Cameron Crowe, like Jerry Maguire is a Gracie films production. So huge, huge presence in, in Hollywood in the late 80s, early 90s. And she's working for, for Jim Brooks as trying to be kind of his right-hand man to, to kind of spot, you know, talent and, and shepherd it along. She's nearing kind of the end of her time there. She's not really enjoying working with Gracie Films. Her and uh, Jim Brooks butted heads over a film called um, film that he made called I'll Do Anything that was a huge flop, one of the greatest disasters in film history, uh, where he tried to make a musical without having a musical collaborator there. So he didn't have songs written for the film that he was writing, and so the songs feel completely disjointed from the movie. It's a really fucking catastrophic film. But um, she tried to stop him at every turn during that movie and tried to, you know, course correct and he wouldn't have it. So bad movie. Um, She was kind of pissed off and Bottle Rocket was the last thing she ever produced with Gracie Films. But what she did was she discovered them through 
another producer named Barbara Boyle. Barbara Boyle had gotten put in touch with Wes Anderson and, and Owen Wilson because a 60-page script that they had written for this movie got passed to her from a, a fellow connection in Austin, Texas. She read this script. She was like, this is great, um, but you need to, first of all, flesh it out. And, and so she sent them back. They fleshed it out. They ended up writing a 190-page script. Which, for those who don't know, a script page essentially equates to roughly a minute on screen. So when you're writing a two-hour movie, you want to write about a 120-page script. They wrote 190. <laughs> so they wrote that script, and then the, Barbara Boyle says, okay, well, you need to prove that you can actually direct a film. So they make a 13-minute short film off of part of that script, which is essentially the like a large chunk of the beginning of this movie as it stands currently, almost shot for shot. Did you have a chance to watch that short I film? I didn't. It was on the Blu-ray I rented, but I did see in one of the special features a clip that was black and white footage. Did they yes. shoot it black and white? It was black and white, yep. Okay, because um, when I saw that little clip of it, I thought, damn, there's an argument that this movie would have looked really cool in black and white. Like this, this bottle rocket as, as in terms of what it became. It's but. true. Um, it would be interesting to think about a, a different universe where uh, a Wes Anderson debut is black and white. It might have sent him on a completely different career path because yeah. all yeah, of maybe. his fil films are so full of color. Well, because Clerks, Clerks was black and white, right? Yeah. I was just thinking of another kind well, of so shoestring debut film that like kind of made a really big impact, but. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's for the best that Bottle Rocket wasn't. Well, another example of that is Chris Nolan's following, uh, which he basically just shot on like weekends and stuff when him and his like friends that were his mm. crew had time. Um, really interesting movie if you ever get a chance to watch that. But um, yeah, so Bottle Rocket, uh, the, the short film is on the Criterion disc and it's also actually on YouTube. So we'll link it in the uh, the show notes here. Oh, cool. Um, you definitely should watch it. It's it's really interesting to to see it in you know the alternate version of it but anyway that short film got passed to polly platt she watched it she's like there's something in this she passed that to jim brooks brooks watched it he's like yep i agree there's something here you should you know see what you can do here so from there they got a hold of the script and brooks looks at it and he's like this is needs to be tightened up so freaking much like he he was like this needs a complete overhaul so he puts them up in a, in a motel in L.A. for two years to work on this script. And they just sit there for two years refining the script and putting it together on Gracie Films' dime. They tighten up the script. They get the budget together. And, yeah, they, they get to make this movie. But just a crazy story of, like, two people who wrote a script, had one, you know, connection in the industry... The script gets passed along the chain, finds its way to the most creative producer in Hollywood by chance, and she shepherds it along and 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 yeah. gets it where it needs to be. She was there, you know, for every point of the shooting of this movie. That's so cool. Uh, you gotta love the stories when people take a risk on 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 kind of up and comers and things like that. And crazy to imagine a world because we're so used to them. That Luke and Owen Wilson are, are just nobodies, just looking for a break. Because they're both uh, very distinct movie stars in their own ways, and they've had great careers, different careers. 
but they're so fucking good in this movie. So it makes sense. We'll get to the performances, I'm sure. But I just love that Polly Platt kind of helped bring this into being. Yeah. And based on the quality of the film, I think they really, they really pulled it off and it is well written. No. And it's, it's, it's so fascinating to think about how prescient she was, because I mean, this is right around the time that stuff like sex lies and videotape and reservoir dogs and slacker were starting to like really get attention was right Mm -hmm. when the short film of this was being made. So she was like seeing where the winds were blowing and knew that like getting in with artists like this was the right way to go. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it's you again. Like everyone needs to go listen to this episode. If you rem- you must remember this. We should honestly just link to it in the show notes because it's a really interesting story. But, um, but she, you know, no one else in Gracie Films believed in this movie or these people really. Like Jim Brooks believed in it. He was kind of getting frustrated. It seemed like with the whole process, but. Um, she was she was defending them at every turn. The other story that was interesting from that was while they were shooting this movie, the dailies were coming back to Gracie Films and people were freaking out. These like old stodgy executives were looking at this stuff and they were like, he's not shooting traditional coverage. He's like editing in camera. Like what, what the hell is he doing? He's not giving options. Um, like this is going to be a disaster. And they didn't like they they you know it just was not communicating to them what this thing was. And Polly was the one who said to Wes, "Stand your ground. Do not back down to these people. You have you have it. Like you are doing it right. I see what you're doing, and it's great. Just hold your ground, and you're going to be great." And you know it ended up like working out like it did, which is really just it's crazy to think about that. Like you know how important it is to have the all these things fall into place for these people to get this thing over the finish line and to create an artist like Wes Anderson. Like the universe is against it, except for Polly and maybe Jim. And they, they were able to sneak one in, and it's dope. It's, I'm glad they didn't change how to shoot it. Like it looks really, really good. It looks sick. Well, the test screenings of this movie were legendarily disastrous. <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently this movie had the lowest scoring test screenings of any film in Columbia Pictures history at the time. <laughs> you know, so people didn't get it. Yeah, but, people were uh, like like we said, they were there were mass walkouts. There were comment cards covered with things like this is shit, this sucks, and like it was just a disaster. Did you see the interview with him and Noah Baumbach? No, I saw the interview with Owen Wilson, uh, Luke Wilson, Wes Anderson. And it was like not all of them together. It kind of hopped around. James Caan. And it was just like a a documentary about the making of Bottle Rocket. It was on the Criterion Blu-ray that I rented. So there was a little clip on YouTube. um, It was like three and a half minutes of him and Noah Baumbach at a a Q&A after a screening of one of his films. I don't, I don't, it might've been this one. Um, but Noah was interviewing Wes and uh, they got on the topic of those test screenings and Wes was like, that was one of those moments in your life where there's a beginning, there's a before and an after. Mm-hmm. And like, it's like part one and part two of your life. <laughs> and, like, and he was like, that was where I, I got to part two of my life. <laughs> he basically said the test screening was going so poorly that he it threw him into to like questioning everything in his life it was that bad 
Wow. And uh, but did you? But he also describes that there was one person who wrote a comment card, and she had written so eloquently like all the things she got from it and like what she loved about it and scenes that had stuck out to her and he was like it was one card there was only one that came back that didn't say s-u-c-k-e-d on it um but he said this one card just he was like this is our audience this is our audience (laughs) yeah i heard that he said that at every showing there was usually one person and everyone else would hate it. There were walkouts, yada, yada. But that at least there was one. And I mean, that makes sense for a movie that has gone on to get achieve cult status, you know? Yeah. That's no, kind mean, of the, it, the bedrock for it. I mean, same deal with like The Big Lebowski, which um, yeah. weirdly, I saw a lot of parallels with this movie on. Did you catch any of that? I didn't until you just say it now, but now I kind of get what you're saying. There's So there's a prominent bathrobe um, oh, I also, yeah. <laughs> I also think that the, uh, the Bob character functions very similarly at times to, to a Donnie, the, to the Donnie character. Yeah, totally. D- oh, Digman's a little bit of a Sochek. Exactly. Kind of an, yeah. He's like an overconfident, um, delusional person, sort of. I kind of feel like the Coen saw this movie and got a lot of inspiration from it. Mm. Maybe I could see that because this I mean, this movie came out two years before The Big Lebowski. It would have come out right when they were writing The Big Lebowski, probably. I would love I would love for that to be the case. It very well may be. But now that you say it, it's like, yes, I see a lot of commonality. And also Luke Wilson in this movie is a little dudish in the fact that he's very accepting of people and very kind of go with the flow in a lot of ways. Mm hmm. No, I, I, I definitely see the connections. I don't know. I'd like to believe yeah. that that's the case. Where I, I like it too, man. I'm with you on this theory. Yeah, totally with you. For sure. Um, but yeah, uh, anyway, we, we've gotten through most of it. At the end of the day, the movie did not make much of the box office, but it was the launching point for their careers, and it got them the budget to make Rushmore, which really catapulted them in the, into the stratosphere. And then the Royal Tenenbaums was kind of the, the culmination of all of that. Well, we've mentioned him a bunch already, but we haven't really talked about him specifically. Let's talk about Owen Wilson. He's yeah. the co-writer of this movie. Dignan is clearly like he—he's kind of like the uh, the Vince Vaughn character in Swingers a little bit. You know, he's the <laughs> the over-the-top friend character that uh, is the highlight of the movie. How do you feel about Owen Wilson in general, and how did you feel about him in this movie? In general, I am positive on Owen Wilson. Rarely am I like enamored or like, whoa, holy shit, that's incredible. But I always like him. I never, I never hate his performances. Um, I have always found him charming and a, and a great star, you know, and a solid actor. So that's my overall opinion. In this, I really loved him. I thought he was, this was so fitting of his energy and so fitting of his comedic rhythms and style. He was, he fit like a glove into the role, but it wasn't just him being himself. He was definitely acting and he was dialing things up, you know, but I loved it. He was cracking me up, especially on second watch today. A lot of his line reads are really funny. It's word choices. The way he delivers them, all of that is great. He's got a really funny look in this movie, really funny haircut, uh, really sort of hilarious to me anyway, body energy. So I was completely charmed by his performance in this movie and really, really dug it. What'd you think of it overall? 
Yeah, uh, loved him in this movie. I think you're you're spot on. It's uh, it's a showcase of everything that I enjoy about Owen Wilson, and I think what makes him a star. It's incredible that he had like no <laughs> acting experience going into this. Basically, doesn't make sense. It doesn't that make does sense. not make sense. Um, I mean, I didn't look. I didn't do a deep dive on his background. No, no, Who I believe you. I'm just I, saying, he yeah. might have acted in in college, you know, in theater and stuff. I don't know, but I mean, he has, you know, he doesn't have credits before this. Such a natural. This year, he's also in the Cable Guy as apparently Robin's date. I've actually never seen the Cable Guy. I haven't either, dude. That's a shamer of mine. Well, that's one that we could consider someday. Yeah. Um, but the following year, he's in Anaconda, and the year after that, he's in Armageddon. So he's already like kind of starting to get these these good side character roles in giant Hollywood movies. He's gaining some steam. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's crazy to think that this is the first thing he was ever in. Yeah, he's he's so organic on camera and so natural. And some of the things that he was saying like were just cracking me up. Like when they're having that argument about the gun, when they're like planning the heist, and he's like, I bought the gun, man. I bought the gun. He's just like, say it again. Say it again. And the guy says it again, and he's like, just like the guy totally misses the point of the threat of him threatening to say it again. And the way he touches his face and storms away like a child starts shouting and complaining in the other room it was just so funny there's so many of those things like looking for a bigger bag when they're robbing the bookstore Do you have anything for like dictionaries or atlases sir you <laughs> just i just i love him i yeah. love him in this movie no he's great in general i'm also a, a fan of owen wilson i think like uh, you know i'd love to see him get another showcase role because he hasn't really had one in a, in a number of years. I feel like, I mean, he was in uh, marry me last year or this year with uh, Jennifer Lopez, but needless to say his early years, I, I, you know, classics from our childhood. So absolutely. You know, I'm thinking like meet the parents, Zoolander. um, I think, didn't you say you were a big fan of behind enemy lines? We yeah, dude, I love that time. movie. I think behind enemy, I don't know if it holds up. I haven't seen it in <laughs> like a decade, but I loved that movie in high school. I thought it was so cool, and I, I thought he was good in it too. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I I don't like it as much anymore, but you know, Wedding Crashers was a big part of our high school mm-hmm. years. Uh, you know, so yeah, he's he's just a big part of uh, comedy in the era that I was growing up in. So he's he's for got sure. a warm place in my heart. The other thing that's interesting about him is like he wrote three movies with Wes Anderson and they're all well received, like, you know, really well written films, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. And he never wrote again. I would love Mm. to see him collaborate with Wes again on on a script. I I wonder why it was only with Wes. Did he maybe never find someone he really clicked with outside of that or I don't know. I, I wonder if it was like one of those unique writing relationships where you know, Owen is doing less of the actual writing and more just idea generating and like kind of, you know, uh, the kind of guy who's like laying down on the couch while the other guy's at the typewriter, you know, <laughs> it's just spitballing. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's more of that relationship where he wouldn't feel comfortable doing the writing himself, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, that's just speculation. I think also maybe he felt like he got it all out of him. He's like, I did that. I did made three, I wrote three movies. I'm just going to focus on the acting. Who knows? Yeah, Owen Wilson rocks, and I, I like you, would like to see him in something. Last time I really loved seeing him was like Inherent Vice, which was a while mm-hmm. ago. And uh, But yeah, I'd like to see him in something juicy sometime soon. 
you know, so fingers crossed that that happens. Yeah, I, I would like to see that as well. Uh, it's been a while since mm-hmm. we've gotten. Uh, well, I will. I will say. I completely forgot about this because I tend to block out Marvel stuff, but he was the co-star in Loki and dude was fucking great in it. Mm. Like so good. Oh, the show. Yeah. yeah I saw bits and pieces. That's, of that. that's yeah. the best thing Marvel has produced since Avengers Endgame, in my opinion. More than WandaVision? Oh, for sure. I, I don't really like WandaVision. I think it's, I think that's absolutely fine but not not mm-hmm. incredible by any means. Yeah, but you're not in love Loki with Loki was actually pretty fascinating. Yeah, I might I might I saw some like clips of it here and there, but I never really sat down and watched the show beginning to end. So that's something that's on my radar to get to. I would day. say it's worth watching just to see more uh, Owen Wilson alone. Hell yeah, dude. And good Owen Wilson too. Yeah. I'm, I I would love to check that out. Oh, also, we didn't mention how good he is in Midnight in Paris. People in Woody Allen films tend to be pretty stiff just because they're kind of so reined into the structure of the dialogue and it seems very uh, rigid. But Owen Wilson still, I think, was allowed to kind of flex enough muffle, uh, muscle through that structure. Yeah. So I, I dig him a lot in that movie, too. No, you and I are both big defenders of that movie. I, th- I think um, mm-hmm. I think that movie gets a bad rap these days. People kind of like talk shit about that movie, and I don't totally get why. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, last thing I want to mention from his recent filmography, though, I completely forgot about this, but he is in the Documentary Now episode. Yes. They're parroting uh, Wild Wild Country. Right, right. And they call it Batshit yeah, yeah. Valley. <laughs> yeah, Batshit Valley. <laughs> uh, which, you know, that those episodes were really freaking funny. They're great. And Owen Wilson is hysterical in them. Yeah, it's a great, great call. Yeah. I forgot about Had that. Had to mention that. Well, we talked about Owen Wilson. Let's talk about Luke, his brother. Mm. What's your, what are your thoughts on Luke in general? Smooth. Smooth, smooth. In general, I honestly haven't seen a ton of his performances. I suppose Old School is maybe his most famous role and the one that I'm most familiar with. And then I would see him pop up in things from time to time. And it's kind of like cameo-esque type of, oh shit, that's Luke Wilson. And it would be things like 310 to Yuma, which is like a Western film starring- Yeah, he just randomly shows up in that. And maybe I'm just thinking in isolation of that moment, and maybe he didn't do that often. But it was really jarring when he just showed up in 310 Yuma, which is a dope flick, It seems like he kind of took a step back from acting at a certain point and kind of just just was relaxing. I mean, he certainly made enough money in his early days to to coast for a while, and I'm sure he just kind of was like, yeah, you know, he seems like a very well-adjusted person generally in in interviews. Yeah. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. the little I've seen, and I I feel like he probably just was like, yeah, I'm good. Um, I don't know. You know, he's never an actor that I feel like is going to be like an Oscar caliber actor. He's, he's just kind of, he's going to come in, do a job and, you know, get on with it. Um, and he doesn't seem to really be bothered to, to be that either, which I think is, you know, in some ways refreshing. Were there any Luke Wilson performances in the past that kind of popped you or do they all fall fall into that category of just being kind of, yeah, he's fine. Well, uh, I mean, I, the other big one that I can think of, uh, from back then was he was the love interest in Legally Blonde. Uh, which, you know, was a huge, huge movie. And I mean, my sister was obsessed. We watched that movie a ton when I was growing up. So I'm, I'm very familiar with him from that. Um, 
the other one that I think of, I just rewatched it recently on on HBO Max because it was on there. It doesn't doesn't really hold up, but when I was a little kid, I I really enjoyed Blue Streak, which he mm. plays kind of the Judge Reinhold in Beverly Hills Cop of that movie, um, where he's kind of the uh, the goody two shoes detective that gets paired with uh, Martin Lawrence in this movie, uh, you know Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a great movie, but I think of him from that. Yeah, but you liked it at the yeah, time. Yeah, and he's good. Yeah. He's funny. What did you think of him in this? I loved him in this. I thought he was great. Um, you know, he's definitely the lesser of the two actors in terms of like, I, I don't think, um, you know, he doesn't have the electric energy that Owen does. But he's really sweet. And all those moments with him and Inez uh, are just just really, really sweet. And um, and his the warmth that he brings to that character are why those scenes work, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's the performance is just as strong as Owen's. I mean, not that there's a need to compare them, obviously, but like it's it's his character is just so much more docile and 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 so much more calm that the actor doesn't have as much to kind of chew on in, in a lot of ways, whereas Owen is a kinetic, energetic character. And, and I love that performance too. But Luke's really struck me with how calm and placid, and you mentioned this too, how sweet he is. He's such a sweet person to everyone he interacts with for the most part. And he's so supremely patient and just willing to play along with with pretty much anything that's going to assist someone else in enjoying life like it's it's really uh another another charmer of a performance yeah. for me yeah he's really Loved endearing it. in it for sure yeah we need more more luke wilson i, I i'm i'm yeah. rooting for a luke wilson renaissance you know yeah, just a, a wilson I, brothers renaissance bring them both back yeah bring them bring them both back and i i want to say too i also loved just like you the the romance with him and inez mm. was very charming and very believable and it just seemed he was so sweet. And the fact that he just like wouldn't leave her side, but it was not in a creepy way. And he was like helping. And he was just like enamored and just being there with her. And it was obvious that she was cool with it and like happy to have him around, mm-hmm. you know? It was just really sweet. And I mean, obviously it's just kind of a a, a well tread space, the idea of people falling in love with a language barrier in the way. But I really dug it in this movie. I, I it it worked for me here. Yeah, this was by far my favorite. Uh, Luke Wilson performance that I've ever seen. Really, really loved him in this. Agreed completely. So we talked about Luke and Owen Wilson. Really wanted to ask you this question because I had no idea that James Caan was going to be in this film. Did you know he was in this before you selected it? No, it was a complete surprise to me. Another example of the dartboard working in mysterious ways. So, I mean, at the time of recording, James Caan passed away less than a month ago, I would say. Something like maybe just a few weeks. And a lot of love and has been poured out about it and rightfully so. But I didn't expect to see him show up here and he was fantastic in this film, I thought. And I, I just love the fact that it was kind of a happy accident that we struck it when we did and he wasn't even involved in your decision to put it on the board. No, not at all. Um I I was completely blindsided when he showed up. Even when he was dumping water from above on top of the building, I I didn't recognize him right away. Me neither. 
Yeah. So I was I was stoked when he showed up. I'm a huge fan of James Caan. I'm a big fan of uh, Michael Mann's Thief. If you've ever seen that, I've heard it's great. It's I've never That's seen a movie it. that you would fucking love. Um, it's yeah, it's just a rad rad movie, and James Caan is great in it. Uh, yeah, huge fan of the Godfather series. Obviously, I mean he's only in the first, but um, yeah, I, briefly. In I the guess second. you're right. Very briefly, briefly, briefly in the second, in the but, second. but in like a flashback right. scene. But yeah, I, iconic actor, and just again bizarre that we just lost him at the timing, and I adore him in this movie and the particularly had my heartstrings really pulled on in the last shot of him in this movie where he's smoking the cigar. It's after they're stealing everything from that. Who's that driver's name again? The character who's like, like we said, was kind of like Donnie Bob, Bob. Yeah. He's clearing out Bob's house with his other goons and stuff. And he's just smoking a cigar. The camera's kind of underneath him looking up grace cloud, background behind him and that rolling stones 2000 man song is playing and he just looks badass and it's the last time we see him in the film and it was just really it's kind of emotional to see it was really kind of a beautiful last shot of him in the film and obviously it was making me think of how we just lost him but uh but he was great in this. yeah super fun um apparently it was basically a favor that jim brooks called in to him <laughs> to come do this movie and um just because you know, Brooks had that much sway in Hollywood. He just called up James Conn and was like, hey, can you go down to Austin for three days and shoot with these kids? <laughs> it's cool that he was willing to do this movie with these people who, again, had no experience making a movie whatsoever. Yeah, and I heard he kind of didn't know what he was doing there. He was only there for three days. I heard him describe it as like being on like Hollywood squares, like over in the <laughs> yeah. corner and stuff. And more towards how we started this conversation about Bottle Rocket in terms of headspace. First viewing, I was like, am I liking this con performance or is it functioning solely on star power? Like sometimes we get that when like a big actor commits to something small, we don't expect to see them. And I can't help but wonder, it's like, oh, am I just being like, oh, wow, that's James Con, But is the performance really good? It really cemented it today that I really liked it. And I like how big he's going with it. And and the details he does, like like shuffling, just playing cards, like at the country club table for some <laughs> reason, because the story builds it up so well that we we think this guy is pretty much like a character from Owen Wilson's imagination right. and is not really a badass or not really. He's just a landscaping guy or something. And it's so funny that the movie is like, no, no, this guy really is really cool and, and really fascinating. And Khan and just chews on that stuff so well, like that kung fu fight scene. Oh, yes, my God. The guy's like, so oh, got your eye. Got your eye. He's just so funny. I think Khan has a good sense of humor about himself, and I think that comes through completely in this movie. Um, he carries himself with, you know, the gravitas of a Hollywood legend, of course, but... He also knows that he is the coolest guy on on screen at the time. Like, mm -hmm. now that's not. I don't know. I, I've lost my train of thought completely because of this yeah. dog. For those uh, listening right now, I'll keep this in. Ruby has been terrorizing <laughs> me, uh, my dog, over the last five minutes. Uh, <laughs> trampling, trampling this. Podcast just completely tonight. wrecking it. There's going to be some severe editing, and I'm going to take the edit on this one just for that reason alone. But. Uh, <laughs> 
No, I, I just, I, I, lo- I love Khan. I think he is uh, a really fucking, when he allows himself to be a comedic foil to things, but maintain the mm-hmm. same persona, it works so well. Yeah, the thing I'm thinking of is like, I love that he's down to just play in the sandbox. Like he, he's this iconic, like you're saying, legendary Hollywood actor, oftentimes plays tough guy characters or really intimidating people, or at least in some of the roles that I've seen. And he just gets in something like this and he just embraces being really goofy, making really strange choices and really big swings and stuff. And you just, you love to see it. You love to see an iconic actor just being almost like childish in the approach to their craft in this specific scenario. It's, it's really cool. So I'm digging through his IMDb right now. Apparently plays himself in silent movie, the Mel Brooks movie from 76. That makes me want to watch that so bad. I've heard silent movie is one of Mel Brooks's lesser works, but uh, now I kind of want to see it just to see James Conn play a comedic version of himself. That would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, I I love Jimmy Conn. Rest in peace. Um, Yeah. And if anyone hasn't seen Thief, go watch fucking Thief. It rules. I'm going to watch it now. I'm not going to put it on the board because you've, you've sounds like you've seen it a good amount. I'll just watch it on my yeah. own. We'll, we'll touch base on it on a pre-recorded chat do. or something. Please do. It's a great one. Yeah, because that, that would be dope. And I just loved like when he's, there's one last like kind of lovable con moment is when he's talking to Future Man at the country club. He's just like... And I'm going to be there laughing my ass off. <laughs> and it's just like, he's so funny. So damn funny. The way he just cackles and right in this guy's face. He does like two or three bursts of like this smoky sounding laugh. It's just awesome, dude. I was cracking up. Yeah, he's pretty great. Well, I think we've touched on pretty much most of what I wanted to talk about with this movie. Uh, anything you want to wrap up on here? Yeah, as you know, I'm a big fan of how music particularly like pop songs and by pop songs i don't mean the genre but just real songs are infused with film and it's one of my my favorite things about movies and when it's done well i just get enamored with it and there were two specific music choices in this film that i loved i was like holy shit if we end up doing a category for end of the year wrap-up for like best use of a song both of these would be contenders for me the first one is a song I was unfamiliar with called Over and Done With by the, this band, The Proclaimers. Mm. And it's when uh, Owen Wilson is running around the motel trying to hijack the Oh, car. you actually have heard of The Proclaimers, my friend. Really? What's, a, what's, a one, what's one I would and know? And I would walk 500 oh, miles. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that obviously is a very famous song. But this was um, a really cool song that I had never heard and was so fitting what the energy of the film and what was happening in the frames at the time and something that was stunning for a first time director to do. Like it just, it fits so well and it looks like it was shot with the intention of being paired with those, with that song specifically. And I was like, damn dude, that's a great, great song choice for that moment. And it's a song I'm going to be listening to a, a lot in the months to come, I think just cause not because of the film necessarily. I mean, the film introduced me to it, which I'm very grateful for. But it's a great song on its own. But man, oh man, does it mesh well with that scene. Then the second song that really stood out to me was 2000 Man. I mentioned it with James Conn thing too. But I'm not familiar with that Stone song. And it fits 
fucking perfectly with that scene too. It was just a great choice and another tune that this movie introduced me to that I'll be happily listening to for a while. Yeah, I think I need to just pull up a Spotify playlist because I guarantee somebody has uh, compiled all the songs into one playlist yep. for this. So gonna going to have to yep. pull that up after this and listen to them. Yeah, so those were the bigger song choices that stuck out. And it's making me want to revisit Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, you're going to watch it a little more open, open-minded? I think so, because I do feel like I was definitely too young for Royal Tenenbaums, like I mentioned earlier in the show. Rushmore was a while ago, and the way I responded so, more, so much more positively to the second viewing of this film makes me more inclined to try some more early Wes Anderson. I'm probably going to be a little hesitant to dip my toe in his later stuff, because again, I do tend to kind of not dig his super, super crazy quirky stuff. But uh, but who knows? Maybe my opinion will change on that, too. So I'm going to try to inch my way through it and just see how I feel. Yeah, start with the early stuff. But I think it might open your mind up to the later stuff, too, because yeah. there are through lines in terms of the types of characters he likes to portray on screen. Um, you mm. know, so, yeah, I, I think I think you might derive more value from that later stuff after having revisited that new that early stuff. One of the twists that the movie took that I really, really loved was when, when Dignan and Anthony are having that argument on the side of the road after Dignan finds out that Anthony had given the money to Inez. And he's like, she didn't love you, man. Like the first time we hear that, we think he's lying and being a shit and just lashing out and being angry and really like ruining this romance for Luke Wilson's character. But then we find out later that he was just truly ignorant to the fact and he actually got it screwed up and he got it wrong. <laughs> and I just loved that, that reversal. I just really like the way this movie portrays friendship. Again, for me, it's very positive and optimistic and it's a very, very, very loving movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. No, I, I also want to kind of close out and along the same lines of what you're saying there. I, I just, this quote from Scott Tobias's review, I thought was really interesting. So I just wanted to read this little bit. Quote, we did it though, didn't we? Says Dignan wistfully. And it's one of those inimitable Wes Anderson moments when some, something whimsical and absurd is also tinged with very real sweetness and truth. In spite of Dignan's scrupulous planning, not a single thing went right with the robbery. Yet just the act of following through on his vision of bringing it out of the realm of make-believe and really being crooks, however incompetent, is satisfaction enough. So it's referring to the moment at the very end when they're walking out of the the prison uh, and Dignan's, you know, following along the fence and he's kind of making the joke about having a plan to escape. And, yep. um, you know, his his he's reminiscing on on this with fond, fond thoughts, despite the fact that he's stuck <laughs> in prison for two years. And I, f- I think that's number one of perfect encapsulation of that character and what makes that character lovable. And also, mm. like like Scott is saying here, like, you know, this is a very Wes Anderson thing. It's about like these, mm-hmm. like these characters that have big ambition and things they want to achieve and things they want to do. But at the end of the day, they don't really care about actually doing it well. They just think that it's just cool that they did it. And I think that like yeah. in a lot of ways, this movie is reflecting the reality of what Owen Wilson and uh, uh, Wes Anderson and Luke Wilson were going through when making this movie. It was just kind of like 
in their minds, it's like if they, even if this movie sucked, even if this movie completely flopped, which it did, and it meant, mm-hmm. but if it meant that their careers didn't continue, which it didn't, um, they did it. <laughs> they would be okay with that. They'd be dignant. Mm-hmm. They'd say, but it was pretty cool that we did that, right? I don't know. I yeah. think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I think so too. And I had the exact same emotional reaction to that scene as Tobias did. So Owen Wilson says that, he says, we really did it. And I go, <laughs> kind of laughing at the kind of delusional aspect of it. But then the look in his eyes, immediately after chuckling at him, my heart just warms because he's so sincere when he says yeah. it. And it's just a really, really nice combination of emotions. And that's right? reflected throughout the film, you know, like every, mm-hmm. every little thing that they do, regardless of how successful or, or you know, uh, important it is he always finds the value in it i don't know i think that's a really cool life lesson that we can all maybe take is uh you know find some find some uh find some good stuff in in the minuscule victories that's okay Mm. there it is yeah well let's get something else on the board in place of bottle rocket right now if i'm not mistaken it's a drew clark week right because i nominated last night in soho last week so we're back to a Drew pick. Do you have contenders? Did you come in tonight with one in the pocket? What, what, what do oh, you think? I came in locked and loaded today. Wow. So no rambling. No. We got, we got, we got straight to the source No, 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 no. I did my prep this week. So a few weeks ago, we were tossing around ideas of things that you were thinking about putting on the board. And one of the mm. things you threw out was a film made by a comedian that I really admire. And while that movie wasn't the one that I wanted to put on, it really got me juiced to eventually get this filmmaker on the board. This movie at one point, uh, had, I, well, I won't say at one point because I don't know if this is even verified, but I've heard that Stanley Kubrick called this one of the best movies he's ever seen. Ooh. Which makes me I'm really, intrigued. really want to put this on for that reason as well. The film is Modern Romance by Albert Brooks. Okay. Okay. I just love Albert Brooks. Me and me and Jared are both huge fans of broadcast news. So Absolutely. we'll review all of this when we get to it. But my choice is Modern Romance. I love that choice, dude. And like you said, we love Albert Brooks. And what number is that? What number is Modern Romance going to be? Modern Romance is going to be number 16. That's right, because we've been hitting a lot of 16s. We've been hitting a lot of them. Great choice, dude. I'm excited about it. You want to run through the list? The current board, as it sits, we've got at number one, You Can Count On Me, number two, Ex Machina, number three, The Right Stuff, number four, The Big Sleep, number five, Operation Condor, number six, The Sixth Sense, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, The Fifth Element, number nine, Days of Heaven, number 10, Big Daddy, number 11, Vertigo, number 12, The Straight Story, number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, number 14, Last Night in Soho, number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, number 16, Modern Romance, number 17, The Blair Witch Project, number 18, Waking Life, number 19, Face Off, and number 20, Kung Fu Hustle. Nice, dude. You ready for me to throw this dart? Let's do it. Well, Drew. Well, Jared. The dart has spoken. I'll just say I went back to a lefty 
a lefty throw tonight. So a little more chaos in this one, possibly. Did we get one on the front half? No. Ooh. We got one just barely in the second half. The dart says 11. That is one of the original dartboard selections. Okay. I'm excited. It's number excited. 11, Vertigo. Vertigo. Hitting the Wayback Machine for a classic. We are dipping into Alfred Hitchcock territory with this. So this is by considered by a lot of film historians to be one of the greatest films ever made, if not the greatest. Yeah, and I, I so you, you have not seen this. I have right? not. No, this is going to be a yep. fresh watch for me. Same here, fresh watch for both of us. Alfred Hitchcock, like you're saying, is a legend, and I'm excited to get into it next week, man. That's gonna be that's a good choice. At time of recording, not seeing anything available for streaming for free, but you can rent it for just a couple of bucks from a variety of places like YouTube TV, YouTube TV or Apple or wherever. So should be easy to see. If it's one of the best movies of all time, it's probably worth three bucks. Just check it one out. One would hope, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I'm excited to check this out. This is one that's been on my list forever. Jimmy Stewart, uh, always a fan of him. So yeah, very excited to dig into this next week, but we are watching Vertigo. That is going to do it for our episode on Bottle Rocket. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Later. Later.